We've been talking about worship for some time now, and we've gone through John chapter 4, how Jesus uh, had this encounter with the woman at the well, and we've seen how that is really an insight into what opportunity from God's side every time we come together and worship, every time to what we call a worship service. And what it is was it was an encounter. She was just coming in there, and her whole motive of coming was just to get her natural needs met, to fill up her water pot and to take it back home for whatever her daily need for that water was. And when she comes there, she sees a man sitting there. And all she can tell about him from the outside, all he appeared about him from the outside that she could tell was that he was a Jew. He was not a Samaritan, and she thought that was kind of strange that he was sitting there, not that he would be strange he'd be sitting on a, in the middle of the day at a well, but that he spoke to her because Jews didn't speak to Samaritans and Jewish males never, Jew males did not speak to an un, un, uh, unaccompanied uh, or unrelated woman. So he violated two traditions there. But then again, he tended to violate traditions, didn't he? Because he cared about people. When traditions get in the way of people, God steps on traditions because he cares enough about people to go through the traditions to get to them. And he spoke to her on the other encounter. We've talked about it. The purpose of this encounter in one way was to reveal who he is. And we haven't gotten there yet in the story, but we will, where he sees, she recognizes that he is not just a prophet, but then she recognizes that he's the Messiah, and then she does something about that. But we're not there yet. But that's what we've been looking at. So every time we come together at Faith Christian Center to a worship service, whether it's Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever it may be, we have that same potential. And from God's perspective, we've seen the desire that he has that we would come and have an encounter with the living Christ, with the living God, not just a God that's on paper, not just a God that's a principle, not just that's a God that's a doctrine or a theology, a God that's a living God that cares about us, that is so much that he's come into you to live in us. And he wants us to have an encounter with him through worship and for us to, him to have an encounter and experience with us. And so that's what we've been talking about. We looked at patterns of worship and we've seen that the kind of worship that accomplishes this is true worship. And Jesus defines that as worship that's in the spirit and worship that's in truth. And we've looked at worship in the spirit and we've seen that it has to be in the spirit, first of all, because God is spirit. That's what Jesus goes on to explain. So in order to worship God, you have to worship him in the, in the realm or the dimension that he exists and that he is. That's part of why God has made part of us to be a spirit person so that we are capable of worshiping him. The other aspect we saw was that in order to worship him, we have to see who he is and it takes the spirit of God to reveal who he is because you can't see him with your natural eyes. You can't hear him. I mean, the world is full of worshipers. They worship sports stars. They worship rock stars and musical stars and they worship... worship, Hollywood stars and all these people because they can see them and because they see them in certain terms, they build them up in their mind as bigger and more wonderful than they are when in reality that's not the truth very often at all. Usually their lives are a mess. Um, Not always, but usually their lives are a mess and yet we lift them up and worship them as authorities and as wonderful people. You know, was it Mickey Rooney that just died, and now this great Hollywood star over generations, I discovered he had eight wives, right up there with Henry VIII, he had eight wives. That does not depict to me a man that knows how to have lasting, solid relationships. That's kind of like the woman at the well. She'd had five husbands, and she was living with a man that wasn't her husband now. And so we've seen the Spirit of God's role in worship is to open our inner eyes to see who God is because worship is a response to seeing who God is and then seeing who we are. We looked in Isaiah chapter 6 as Isaiah was called up into the throne room of God and it, it depicts really that pattern of worship because the first thing, of course, he sees is the obvious thing of who God is and then the next thing he realizes is who he is compared to God and his resp- first of all, he says, holy, he sees God as holy. And then we've been looking at, all right, what does this tell us about God? What is it about God that we see? Because we looked at in truth means looking, being truthful about ourselves, and it takes the Spirit of God to open our eyes to be truthful about ourselves. And, oh, you know, when you preach this, the Spirit of God then preaches it back to you. Oh, <laughs> 
Oh, has he been opening my eyes to see things down deep in my heart I didn't want to know were there. But oh, it feels good. It's a hurt that feels good because you know truth and light is getting in there. There's no condemnation. It's just all of a sudden I realize an attitude I had I didn't realize I had. And oh, I was embarrassed to admit it to my wife, but it was in there. And it was the Spirit of God shining in that on, His light on there. And that's what truth is. Truth is being willing to see who God is and see who we are. So we've been spending time now looking at who God is. What is the Bible? What does God say about Himself so that the Spirit of God can open our eyes to see that? Well, we see the first thing we saw Him is He's the source of everything, He is the creator of all things. Then we saw He's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's in Isaiah chapter 6. And then over the last few times we've been looking at this, we've been looking at the third thing we see about him is he's Adonai. He is Lord. He is absolute authority. Absolute authority. And we, we've looking, look, likened that to a king like Nebuchadnezzar who issued a commandment. And the only choice when he issued a commandment is whether you obeyed it or you died. There was no middle ground. There was no, well, I don't know whether that's, I want to or not. If you hesitated, you died because he had absolute authority. And that's what the word Adonai means. It means absolute authority, and that authority comes because he's the creator of all things. And then we looked at, at, we looked at, at that Jesus and how Jesus operated under that same authority, and that's a result, but because he was a worshiper. He was under the authority of God so he could flow in the authority of God. And then the last time we met, that I was here, we talked about that, 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 the response to that authority, the, the expression of worship to that authority is obedience. See, worship isn't slow songs. Worship isn't a type of song. Worship isn't even a song at all. It's expressed sometimes by worship, but many times it's expressed by attitudes, expressed by words. When Lafayette Scales was here, he took us through Malachi. And the first couple of chapters of Malachi especially are all about worship. And he, he taught it from that perspective that it's how you, the attitude with, of, with, with what you bring to God, the attitude that you bring to Him when we come together, the attitude with our giving, the attitude with our prayer, the attitude about what we do. Are we giving God our best are we giving him leftovers? Are we giving him the best of our time or whatever's left over when we do everything else? That's a reflection of our attitude of who God is and who we are, and that's worship. It's not just what we do, it's the attitude with which we do it. And so we talked about the full expression of worship, God as Adonai, as Lord, is only through our obedience, and we ended up with a tremendous example of that in First, in first uh, Samuel chapter 15, which is Saul. When King Saul is told by Samuel, speaking for God, to utterly destroy all the Amalekites, and he destroys most of them. And we saw that the excuse he used for partial obedience, partial obedience is still disobedience. Just like a partial truth is still a lie. There's no gray, grayness with truth. It's either truth or it's not truth. And so obedience is either you obey completely or you've not obeyed. And Saul had the attitude, well, I've done the best I could, and he, there were three basic reasons why he didn't complete it. Of course, what he did is he didn't kill he Agag, the king, and he kept the best of the sheep. And the first thing excuse he gave was that the people save them because they wanted to make an offering to God of the best. And we saw that the problem with that is what he was saying is, well, he was reasoning with God instead of obeying him by saying to, to, to Samuel, well, there was, a, there was a better thing we could do with this. And the second thing is he gave an excuse. Well, the people wanted to do this. And the third thing we looked at is what Ag, Ag, Agag said as, he was, as they, Samuel had him brought out to execute him is he basically said, look, the reason you're doing this is because of the way my people treated Israel over 40 years ago, more than that. And he said, that's a lot of time that's passed. You know, we ought to be over this by now. And the point is this. When it comes to obeying God, when we, when we, when we give excuses, when we give other ways of doing things, and when we give other, our ideas 
what we're basically saying, God, is we're on the same level as you and what together we with you are trying to come up with the best thing to do here. And we know you're smarter than we are, but we have our own input. We have our own ideas. And that communicates an attitude we have about God that's not Adonai. That God is greater than we are, He's bigger than we are, but we don't see Him as Lord. And so in order to worship Him as Adonai, we have to be serving Him as Adonai. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us. Remember, God's calling us to something. He's calling us to a higher level of worship. So He's not condemning us. He's not beating us up. But He is correcting us by bringing our, our eyes and our minds and our hearts into a focus of who He really is. When we began talking about who He is, I shared with you that there are two aspects of God, two sides of God that are, that are, that, that are hard sometimes in our minds to reconcile together. We've been talking primarily about the God of the Old Testament, the God as He's revealed in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament God, I saw this recently, some, there's some teaching out there that the God of the Old Testament's passed away and now there's a new God of the New Testament as if there's two gods. Well, the one thing the Bible says is there is one God. And it says that in the New Testament too, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that also in Ephesians chapter 4, there's one God. There's not a God that's died or changed and a new God. So whenever you can't reconcile something, understand that's because of what you don't see, not because of who God is. I'm going to say that again. Whenever you have trouble reconciling something in your mind about God, it's because of something you don't see, not because of something you do see. And so we need to stop and ask God to show us how this fits together. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Because we're going to look at what the New Testament says about God because this is also an aspect of worship. Probably the most familiar or one of the two or three most familiar verses in the Bible, but I want you to read it with me. John chapter 3. Verse 16. You see this on signs in football stadiums. You see this on, you know, different sporting events, people holding up 3 colon 16. This is what they're referring to. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so... This is Jesus speaking. So this is something Jesus wants us to know about His heavenly Father. For God so loved the world. Now, I did a Christmas message a number of years ago on the word so, S-O. That's the, one of the most important words in this verse. Because what this is saying about God is not just a fact. It's a fact that God loved the world. And I'm glad of that. But the word so is telling us not just that God loved us, the world, but it's telling us something about how much He loved the world. Without the word so in there, it just says God loved the world and gave His only begotten Son. But the word so is telling us that the Spirit of God wants us to know not just the fact that God loved us, and because you're part of the world, right? That means you're included. But it wants us to know how much God loved the world. Now, there were times on vacation where I had to remind myself of this because I saw some people treating people in a way that I'm thinking, I don't know how anybody could love them. And I had to remember, but God does. I saw some people that were just plain obnoxious. And sometimes they were a little bit obnoxious to me. 
And I just, you know, I had thoughts I don't like to have. And I had to remind myself, but God loves them too. And just possibly there were some things I've done in my life that may have been a little obnoxious to God. See, I'm not the standard by which God measures everybody. He measures us all by Christ. He measures us all by Himself. This is the verse that eventually brought me to Christ. Be holy as I am holy. And I saw God's standard was Him. And I was just like Isaiah. Woe is me. For God so loved the world, so loved everybody that's ever lived, the most obnoxious, vile person you can think of, God so loved them. And He didn't just so love them, He proved His love for them, and that's what the rest of this verse says. Or part of the rest. It says, He so loved the world that He gave His only... That's important too. Because He didn't have 50 million of them and chose one out of them. He had one only begotten out of Him Son. And He gave the only one He had. He gave His precious, pure Son for the vilest person you've ever known. He gave His precious, pure Son's unblemished life for you and me because He so loved you and me. So the quality of God that we're going to begin to look at today is the other side of God that doesn't seem to balance with the ones we've looked at, but it fits perfectly together, and that's that God is love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Verse 7. Beloved, now there's some people out there teaching that 1 John wasn't written to Christians, especially the first couple of chapters. But they're doing that to try to support the doctrine that they're teaching, which is heresy. And I'm not going to get into that right now. But if you hear somebody teaching that and the problem that they have, and I want to get into this, the problem they have is 1 John 1.9, if, if, that, that if any of us sin, we have to confess our sins. And there are some people teaching out there that if once you're in Christ, you can't sin. Huh. I suspect I have a room full of examples today <laughs> that can disprove that. And of course, the problem they have is 1 John 1.9, but this whole book is addressed to beloved. 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 Let us love one another. We know we're supposed to do that. For love is of or out of God. Love comes out of God. Just as authority, we saw in Romans 13, that all authority comes from God. He's the source of it. He doesn't have it. He, he is the source of it. God is not full of love. It's His essence of what He is. That's why God cannot help but love because it is his, not just His nature, it's the essence of who He is and what He is. Let us love one another for love, this kind of love, comes out of God. He is the source of it. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So this kind of love that John is talking about back in chapter 3 verse 16 and in many other places in his writing. And here in 1 John is the Greek word agape. There's 
Five basic words for love in Greek, whereas we have one word, that range everywhere from eros, which is, which is erotic love, to this highest type of love. Whereas we have one word, so you need to know which kind of love he's talking about. There's a place, I think it's in First Peter, where he says we're to love one another, and then he talks about uh, a superabounding love in the same verse, and it's two different Greek words. There is phileo, which means a brotherly affection, and then the other word that's used, there's agape, and if you don't understand that, there's, it doesn't quite make sense, and there's the, the end, of first, end of John's gospel where Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, do you love me? And Peter says, you, you know, talks back and says, you know I love you, but Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. And he's, he's, he's bringing Peter back because Peter before was ready to die for him, remember? I'm gonna, I, I, I agape you. I've, it's a self-sacrificing love. I care so much about you, I'm not even conscious of myself. Kind of like back in the garden we've we talked about. And that's what Peter was so bold in. Of course, he denies him three times and Peter has had the slack jerked out of him. You ever had that happen? He's had the slack jerked out of him, and now he realizes when Jesus says, do you agape me? He says, no, my love's not at that level. I thought it was, but it's not. I phileo you. I have a, I have a brotherly affection for you. So those words are important to understand. This word is agape here also, which means a self, the love the way God loves, which is sacrificial, which is I don't care about myself. I only care about, I don't need anything back from you. I'll love you whether you love me back or not. Well, the greatest evidence of what that means is for God so loved the world. Well, has the world all loved him back? No, there are far more that haven't loved him back than have loved him back. And he loved the ones that never would love him back enough to die for them, knowing they wouldn't love him back. That's agape. I don't need anything back from you. Because it's out of my nature to love you, whether you do anything for me or back, or even whether you accept it or not. So for the moment, the moment you tell somebody you love them, and then you're looking for the response, that's not agape. It's good, but it's not agape. So now you can begin to see, this has to come from God. Because we're human beings, we can't do that. And if you think you can, you're with Peter. <laughs> if you think you can summon up that kind of love... Just live a little while and you'll find out you can't. It's not in you unless God puts it in you. Because this kind of love only comes from God. And so he says, those who love are born of God. So you can't operate in this kind of love unless you're born of him. He can't, that love can't be put in you until you're born out of him because when you're born out of him, you have his nature in you. And until you are born out of him or born again, as Jesus teaches earlier in John chapter 3, then God's nature is born in you. But there's a second part of this. For those who love are born of God, so they have that love in them and knows God, which is what we're talking about. He who does not love does not know God. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he who does not love is not born of God and does not know God. John was very careful about how he wrote things. Everyone who loves, verse 7, is born. One, born of God, and number two, knows God. Knows what God's like. Knows God's nature. Not knows about Him, knows God. He who does not love, because he's still talking to beloved here, does not know God, for God is love. So apparently it's possible to be born of God, have God's love in you, but not give it because you don't yet know what it's like. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Not has love, not is full of love, 
not as a super abundant amount of love. He is love. So when we're talking about things that God is, that He is Lord, that He is holy, that He is creator and the source of everything, we must also recognize He is love. Let's read on a little bit. For in this the love of God was manifested, made known towards us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that, through, that they, we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment or the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Verse 9 saying this, In this is love that God was manifest toward us, uh, verse 10, excuse me, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. What He's saying is, we cannot initiate a love towards God. Our love towards God is a response to seeing His love towards us. Just like our worship of Him is not something we can work up ourselves. You can do it with praise, you can do it with thanksgiving, but you cannot do it with worship. Because praise is something where you choose to, give, to honor things God has done. Praise is just what it is for any of your kids. It's just what it is for somebody that's done good things. You can praise them and acknowledge. Look at the wonderful things my kids done. Did you see the report God Johnny brought home? That's praise. Do you see what they did? Do you see what our neighbors have done for our, our, the other neighbor? Do you see what people have done? Do you see what you know, this church has done for that church in, in Playa Laguna? That's all praise. That's wonderful. We're to praise. We're commanded to praise. But you can choose to do that. You can just decide to do that. But worship is a response to seeing who God is. And here, is, in part, our worship back is a response to seeing God's love for us. Here in His love. Not that we gave love to Him, but that He first loved us. And that's why He says a few verses earlier, if you're having trouble loving one another, it's because you really haven't seen the love that God has for you. You know it here, but knowing it here doesn't do much. It's knowing it in here. Because worship comes out of in here. This kind of love comes out of it in here. Let's move on. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Little words. Verse 3. I'm telling <laughs> you, ought to take time if you've never done this and just read very slowly, out loud, chapter 1. Of Ephesians. In fact, I want to make a suggestion. Do it on your knees. Very slowly read it. And then read it in a translation that you wouldn't normally read. Whether it's the Amplified or the New Living or whatever it is you would not normally read. But read it very, chew every word. This chapter is so rich. Ever, I'd be careful of this. Ever eat something that is just so good, you don't want to swallow it yet? You just, you just want to run it around in your mouth and squeeze every little juice out of it? I mean, whatever that may be for you, whether it's, I don't want to go there because I'll, I'll lose half of you. Do you know what I mean? You don't want to just eat it to get it in your stomach. You just want to savor it. Oh, I 
that's so good. Oh, you ought to taste this and suggest. Oh, so good. Probably because I had some desserts on vacation I shouldn't have had. That's, <laughs> that's what this chapter is like. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Wow. And the rest of this chapter is about those heavenly blessings. Just as He chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us, now some translations say accepted in the Beloved, and other translations say He bestowed grace. Literally the words are He bestowed grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing in heavenly places, in spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, just as He chose us before Him, that we should be holy and without... chose us before the foundation of the world. Think of that. He chose you. He chose you. He chose you, Jerry. He chose you chose you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Before you'd done anything good or bad. Before you were a thought in anybody's mind. He chose you. That we should be holy and without blame before Him. Now having studied His holiness that gives us an idea of what He's talking about there. He cleaned us up actually did more than clean us up. He took your old dirty nature out and put a clean one in you. Why did he do that? See, when I was saved, I thought all that Jesus did for me was die on the cross so I didn't have to go to hell. Now, that's pretty good. If that's all that's in this, I'm, I'm in. And then I realized, well, there was things in heaven, so I've got, you know, I've got a heavenly home, heavenly hope the Bible talks about. But then as I began to study more and read more, I realized there was a whole lot more to this. That the reason he had Jesus die for me, the reason he gave his only begotten son was to qualify me for something. Because what he did is he took my old sin and paid for it. And he paid for my old sin so that he could legally put a new nature in me that was holy. Because if he just put his own nature in me with my old sin being unpaid for, then I'm going to go off and do the same things all over again. So he had to legally pay for the sin. That's what Jesus suffered for on the cross. And then God could take your old nature out and put a brand new nature in. That nature is born out of Him. It is His nature, just as your parents' nature was born into your flesh by their DNA, which is why you end up looking like them and sometimes talking like them. And the very things you said, I'll never do, that they did, you find out just like, just like Romans chapter 7. The things I don't want to do, I do. I remember my mother saying things, and I said, I'll never say those things. My father loved to collect watches, and I used to laugh at that practice. Gosh, how many did he need? And they weren't valuable ones. He just, you know, every one he bought watches. I found myself looking at watches lately. And I told my wife, I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, don't let me go there. I have everything I could possibly need to tell time. I don't need to go there, but I realized I'm starting to act like my father. Well, that's not a shock, is it? I mean, I don't want to do that. Why? Because I've got some of his nature in me. So is it strange 
that for God to change us, he would put his nature in the inner part of us, the spirit man, so that we would now give his ability and his desires down inside as we have in our flesh from our natural parents. So he is literally the father of your spirit inside. That's what it says in Ephesians 3.14. says it also in, in, in Hebrews 12. But here's the words I want you to see. We skip, skipped over two words. He did all this. Look at this. Look what he did. He chose us, verse 4, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined. That just means he planned ahead of time us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself. Wow! He didn't just save me so that I don't go to hell. He didn't just save me so that I don't go to hell and I get to spend eternity in heaven. He saved me so that he could legally put his own nature in me. And why did he put his own nature in me? So that I could become his child, his son. You as daughter or son. Wow. Think about that. God, the one we've studied, the creator of the universe, who can have and do anything he wants. God who is holy. God who is Lord. God who is even other things we didn't look at. God who is all those things. What chose you and paid for you ahead of time so that ultimately you could be his child. That's not symbolic. Well, we're all children of God. No, we're not. Any more than everybody's a child of our family. There's four of them. And it's easy to determine how they became. They were born of us. Now, I know some were adopted, not in our family, but that means they've been included as if they were born of you. Born of us. God's the creator of all, but he's not the father of all. In order for him to be your father, you have to be born into the family. You must be born again. The word again has two meanings to it. One is a second time, but the other meaning is from above. So you must be born a second time, this time from above. Why? So that you could... Look at what he says. It's astounding. It's astounding. Having predestined us, verse 5, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He did it so he could have you for himself. You, me, to himself, personal. Wow. But we skipped over two words. I read them, but I skipped over them. And these are the two most important for our study. Verse 4 again. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestined us. So what motivated him, what motivated him to pay the price so that all this could be done in you and for you so that he could have you to himself, what motivated that was his love for you. Go to chapter 2. Because the rest of that chapter then goes and talks about the blessings and it talks about you know, God, there's a prayer at the end of chapter 1 where Paul prays that God would open the eyes of their understanding, that they would understand three basic things. They would see the hope of their calling that's in Christ Jesus, that they would see that, together with all the things, the, the inheritance that they have. And the third thing is the greatness of the power that was displayed towards them when God raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He goes on and finishes that thought. Chapter 2 begins with talking about us and you. He made alive who were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you formerly walked. So we were dead, spiritually dead. Dead doesn't mean you don't exist. Dead means you're separated from the source of life. Physical death means you don't 
have physical life anymore. Spiritual death means to be separated from the source of spiritual life. Ever be go along with your with your vacuum cleaner? Now they have cordless ones nowadays, but you know the corded ones, the ones that are plugged into the wall. I've done it. It pulled the plug out of the wall, and once it pulled the plug out of the wall, it died. It stopped working. Why? It was no longer plugged into the source of the power to function. And when a human spirit is separated from God, it's separated from life, the source of life, and therefore it is spiritually dead. And sin creates death because it's rebellion against God. And Adam sinned and we were all born into that tendency, but Romans 5 says we all did it anyway ourselves. So if you've ever committed one sin, you separated yourself from God. And there's no hope of coming back because that vacuum cleaner cannot plug itself back in again. Can it? It doesn't have, once it's, it has no ability to go plug itself back in because it's dead. It's just not working. So it requires someone with a greater perspective and a greater ability to go plug it back into the source. And that's what we needed. We needed somebody to plug us in again. We were dead in our, our sins and our transgressions. Over later on in chapter 2, talking about the Gentiles and without God and without hope in this world. There was, to be dead means there's no way I can do anything to come to life. That's what he's saying here. Even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, in which, verse 2, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted yourself in the lusts of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But here's what I want to get to. Verse 4. Aren't you glad there's a verse 4? But God. I did a message once on but God. But God. You and I were dead. Spiritually dead. Without any way to do it. In fact, we were so dead we didn't know we were dead. So dead we didn't know we were dead. The people out in the world trying to have fun, the world's kind of fun, trying to do all... They don't know they're dead until they get around somebody that's alive. And then they may begin to notice, wait a minute, you have something I don't have. They don't understand it, they just see the difference. Dead. But God. I want to read this and then I'm going to quote it from the Amplified. But God, who is rich in mercy because of, on account of, motivated by His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not of works that anyone should boast. Because of, the Amplified says, because of and in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which He loved us. Think about that. Because of and in order to satisfy the great and intense love 
with which God loved you, he made you alive together with Christ. That means down inside of God, there was something that would not be satisfied unless he could have you to himself. Wow. Do you ever have an itch somewhere you can't get to? Ever see somebody with... They'll do anything to satisfy that need. Ever have a craving? I won't ask you for something and you just have to have it. Some of you used to be cigarettes and you know you hit that time when you didn't have anything left and you got it under seat covers under you know maybe I dropped one somewhere. You get a craving. You have to have it. You'll do anything to get it satisfied. Anything. Whatever the price you'll pay to satisfy that longing. In those cases that was our flesh. In this case, it's his heart, it's his love. His love, his love, his love motivates. It's not a concept, it's not an idea, it's a force. It motivates him to do whatever it takes to satisfy that deep longing in his heart, which is his nature. And it was for that reason he saved you. Not so we would do great things for us. Yes, he's called us to do things for him. But what motivated him to save you is the longing he had for you. And you know when he did it? It says in Romans 5, it says in several, Romans 8, when we were his enemies. Wow. Romans 5, we're not going to turn there, but Paul says, you know, a, a great man might die. A, a great man might die for, for, his, for a friend but not for an enemy. While we were yet his enemy. So I was never an enemy of God. Yes, you were. You rebelled against him. You may not have been an enemy in your eyes because you may not have had an army arrayed against him. You may not have been planning things against God, but when you rebel against God, that's that enmity against him. When you've resisted him, that's that enmity against him. Because now we understand who he is. He's Lord. He has absolute right over everybody's life because he created us. And while we were yet his enemies, opposed him, and some of us really opposed him, opposed him, he loved you so much. This is what that agape love is like. Even when you're my enemy, I love you. That's why he says, Jesus says, if you're going to be like my father, you need to not just pray for your friends. The world does that. Pray for those that despitefully use you. That's one thing for somebody just to offend you by accident. It's another thing to pick you out and personally premeditate offending you. Personally go after you and persecute you. Purposefully do it. And he says, they're the ones you need to pray for. Yeah, I'll pray for them, all right. <laughs> Get them! <laughs> no. Because that's what his love is like. And what we've learned from 1 John is we really can't give that to each other until we've begun to know it from him until we've begun to know it from him. Turn quickly over, we're in Ephesians, go over to chapter 3. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of His glory, there that is phrases again, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit 
in the inner man. Now stop there a second. This must be something big. Because if Paul says, I'm praying that God would strengthen you on the inside with power for something, he's got to be preparing us for something that's big. Something that we can't do in our own strength. What is it? That Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in what? Love. What love? His love for you. I've prayed this for years over my wife, my family, and myself. And earlier this year, something went off in me about this that I'd never seen before. But then again, I've been praying for years that God would open the eyes of my understanding. You need to pray that. I pray that, not just once, I pray that almost every day. Ask God to open my eyes for understanding. And then what happens is you'll get on a flow where the Spirit of God just begins to illuminate things out of verses I know backwards and forwards because I've read them, meditated on them, and things begin to become alive because the Spirit of God... He won't just do that for me because I'm a pastor. He'll do it for all of us. That's not just written to pastors. That being rooted, he's strengthened by His Spirit with might in our inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. What does that mean? Well, part of what it means is that He may live through you and He may live His life through me. He may live out so that when people see you, they see Christ. That we become what Paul became. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself, who loved me and gave himself for me. That Christ might live in us. Not that you may live according to his will, but that he may live in you. So, well, I'll become, you know, I'll give up my personality. You never lose by giving anything to him. You won't lose your personality, you'll gain it. But how do we do that? The next verse says, being rooted, not being rooted and grounded in love. Think about what that says. To be grounded in something means it's your foundation. It's the basis on which you stand, on which everything in your life is built. Over in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about building your life on obedience to his word. And that makes you, that's like the difference between the guy that builds his house on sand and the guy that builds his house on a rock. Same house, same materials, same plans, same construction company, same contractor, same supplies, everything. And one stands in a storm and the other falls. Why? The only difference is what it was founded on or grounded upon or established on. And so our lives are to be established on the revelation of how much God loves us. But not that then, not just being founded on it, grounded on it, but being rooted in it. That's a different concept. When an when when acorn germinates and begins to grow, or any plant, any tree, my, I'm not a botanist, so I don't understand, but my understanding is the very first thing it will begin to do is a root will begin to grow down into the soil and it becomes what's known as the taproot. And what a taproot does is two basic things. First of all, it goes down to find the source of water. Because when we have these huge droughts, the big trees don't dry up unless it's a severe drought. Why? Because they've got a taproot that's gone down into a deeper source of water that doesn't dry up in a drought. The other thing that taproot does is it holds the tree. And what Paul is praying here is that we would be rooted, drawing our life source, drawing our sense of meaning and well-being and security in life, not from the wind that's blowing around us, not from whether the sun's out or it's cold and freezing, but drawing it from the hidden source of life that's down underneath 
and being grounded in that so that nothing moves us. Go to me, with me to Romans chapter 8. Because then he goes on to say, only then can you begin to know together with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. Only then can you understand how he can love those unlovable people. How can he love those people I saw this week that I was looking at and had to get my thoughts under control? How can he, how can he love the people that nailed him to a cross? How can he love that? Because he was rooted and grounded in his Father's love for him. Because until you're rooted and grounded in that love, you're going to be trying to get that security and stability from the people that are around you. So they have to be perfect. They have to measure up because they're the source of your security. You can't let them be who they are so that Christ can reach them, let alone you want Him to reach them. But when your source of that is all coming from Him who never changes, who never varies, who never wavers in his love for you, then it doesn't matter what's going on around you. You can begin to understand that love he has for them because that love's beginning to flow out of you. Here in his love, not that we love first, but that he first loved us. Romans chapter 8. This is another thing. I mean, these verses I'd known for years, memorized them, meditated on them, and something went off in me. Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to His purpose. That verse is quoted so much. For whom He foreknew, we've already seen He foreknew us, for whom he foreknew, he predestined. Don't get hung up on that word. That just means he planned ahead of time for. To be conformed to the image of his son. So he planned ahead of time that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Remember in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Here He said He was His first begotten, so that He might be the first begotten among many brethren. So He planned this ahead of time so that the one Son could not just be alone, but there could be millions of other sons in the family. That's what he planned ahead of time for. All right, let's go on. Moreover, whom he, verse 30, whom he predestined, whom he planned for, he called. Were you called? That's how you got here. Jesus said nobody came because they called themselves. They came because I called them. So if you're called, if you're in the body of Christ, that means he predestined, he planned ahead of time for you. And then when the right time came, he called you into what he planned you for, which was to be one of his sons or daughters. Who moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, and whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? Paul is tripping out here. Saying, wow, look at, look at what he's done. He didn't just save us from hell. He planned ahead of time. And when he planned ahead of time, he paid it ahead of time. And then when the right time came, he called you. And the ones he called, he's justified you. He made you just as if you'd never sinned. And when he made you justified, he glorified you. Wow, what shall we say to these things? Woo! If God is for us, that's what He's just described, how He's for us. Not just, eh, He's for us. No! Look at what He's done. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Tell you, read this in the morning, it'll, I don't care where you have to go to work. Wow! 
Not just, yeah, God's for me. Go back and see how he's shown how he's for you. Wow. What shall, if God's for, who can be against us? I love this verse. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how would we think he would not also together with him give us all things? If God gave his very most precious best for us while we were yet his enemies, why would we think he would withhold anything else from us that he has, including healing for your body? I can't go through the story of you going over time this morning. But years ago, I was afflicted with a condition. It wasn't fatal, but it was very uncomfortable. And I tried all kinds of things, and they just couldn't, you know. The only thing they had was a, a pill I could take that would stop it, but it would just knock me out. And I never knew when it was going to happen. And I finally got fed up. I'd done, you know, I'd quoted scriptures and read things and listened to CDs or they tapes back then. And, and not, that didn't seem to work. And the reason was I wasn't desperate enough. Sometimes you've got to get desperate. And I got mad at God one day. And I said, how come? And the Lord took me to this verse. And I took this verse and I meditated on this verse for a week. By, by meditate, I mean whenever I did not have to be thinking about something else, I was thinking about this verse, going through one word at a time. And about a week later, this condition tried to come back on me. And I opened my mouth and I don't know what came out, but it exploded out of me. Because by meditating on this verse, it became real to me that why would God hold anything back from me if he didn't withhold his own son? Oh, it gets better, and we've got to close. Because I want to quickly get to this last thing. There's so much in here. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There's only two that could qualify. Who is the one that condemns? You know, for, it's God that justifies. So he's one off. He won't because he justified you. Who else could legally condemn us? Only Christ Jesus. But he says he's the one that died for us. More than that, he's been raised and he's sitting at the right hand of God and he, ever li- he makes intercession for us. This is what I wanted to get to. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now Paul's gone through some rough things in his ministry and he's going to list some of them here. But this is what got him through. This is what he knew of God that got him through everything. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril as sword or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sleep for the, sleep, sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, not because I've read books or commentaries or listen to CDs, because I've experienced this in my life. And this is what I've learned that I've become rooted and grounded and based my life on. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, whether I live or die, whether I'm dealing with angels or principalities or powers, that's angels or demons, or things present, whatever's going on in my life right now, or the future, what's going to happen? or height, the very top of a mountaintop experience, or I'm at the very depth of lotus of spirit, or any other created thing, I'm convinced, shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Paul said, this is the sum of my life. I've learned this about God. That no matter whatever happens to me, I'm secure. I'm safe. I'm well taken care of. I'm deeply rooted in something that no life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor top of a mountain or the bottom of a valley, nor anything I'm dealing with now, nor whatever may come, can ever change this. Because I am rooted and grounded in the one thing that can't ever change. And that's the love of God for me. I'm persuaded by what I've been through. I'm persuaded of what I now know of Him. That nothing can separate me from the love that He has towards me through Christ Jesus. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we just stand in awe of the love that you have for us. And we acknowledge this morning that we've seen so little of it. And the evidence of it is how we treat each other and even ourselves. How little love of this kind of love we see in the church today. Oh, we see human love and we see genuine caring, but so little of this sacrificial love, which means we've seen so little of it from you. You've given it, but we've seen so little. So we ask you today to open the eyes of our understanding because we want to worship you not just as holy, not just as creator, not just as Lord, but as the lover of our soul. Open our eyes to see all that you've done for us has been motivated by the great and intense love that you have for each of us personally. Holy Spirit, you are the one sent to us to reveal to us the secret things that are in God's heart. We ask you to reveal this greatest of all to us. In Jesus' name.